We're excited. Put your hands together for Wally Rudolph. Thank you, Christine. Uh, Christine also hosts a podcast called Storyworthy. Um, you guys can check it out. It's on iTunes. You should subscribe to it. It may be of interest to you to subscribe to it before this Thursday because a certain writer might be on it, and then you can listen to it again. Uh, I want to thank Skylight Books for having me here. Uh, I think this sort of event is really indicative of what a locally independent owned bookstore can offer versus an online uh, retail giant. Uh, the fact that a, I mean, a real literary institution opened their doors to me, a first-time novelist, is awesome. Um, and I appreciate it. You guys have no idea. Um, I also want to thank uh, my entire team at Soft School, Dance Matanka, uh, uh, Claire Shalinsky, um, Megan Fishman, uh, Katie, uh, oh, I forgot Katie's last name. None of them are here tonight, but I wanted to put that out there because it's good juju and because I'm recording this shit and I might edit them in and I want them to know that I really thank them. Um, you know, I finished the first draft of Four Corners in late 2007. It took me a solid year to finish the, uh, the first draft of the manuscript. It took me two and a half years after that to secure my uh, literary agent, uh, my super literary agent, Amy Tipton. And um, my, I, it took me two and a half years after that to find Dance Matanka over at Soft School. So all together it took me about seven years to get this book to this day. Um, people have asked me, all you guys, my close friends have asked me like what it's been like to get have the book finally published because you guys know it have been kind of seeing me struggling with that whole process. And the metaphor I thought of is it's, it's, it was so similar to kind of that I ended up landing with was uh, it's kind of like having a phantom limb in the sense that here's this huge extension myself that I put uh, a lot of my blood, sweat, and tears into and that I couldn't show anyone for the longest time. And that, a little bit that's on me because I, you know, I was groomed into the traditional publishing process, so I did want the, uh, the validation of going through a traditional publisher and also to have the chance to have it critically reviewed was a big thing for me, so I own that, but at the same time, there's up days, uh, good days and bad days with it, and the bad days where I'm giving myself affirmations in the bathroom mirror, and the good days where I'm just proud of myself that I finished it. But I'm saying all that because it's when in moments like this, even though it's small, it's it's, it's really uh, special to me. I used to take I take it for granted in my youth and when I was a younger artist, but this is like uh, it means so much that you guys showed up, that you guys buy the book. Um, it is. Absolutely, it, it's a really sacred relationship between artists and audience that no matter what happens with technology and everything else, I don't think it's a covenant that can be corrupted by the way all the trends that move back and forth and everything moves so fast nowadays. This right here, to me, is what it's all about as an artist. So thank you so much, and I'm going to read now um, from the second chapter of uh, Four Corners. and. Uh, we'll go at it at a bit for a bit, and then um, we're not too long. And then we will take. I'll take a few questions, and um, after that, we'll sign some books, hang out, and say hello, hello, hello. So let's do this. This is from the second chapter, and our lovers, our protagonists, uh, Ben and Maddie, have already been on the road for a day, and they wake up on uh, New Year's 2000 to this mess. The shame is 
Ben drove through the night. His hand wouldn't heal. He'd been taking blood thinners and a crapshoot from the medicine ca cabinet back home. I call that God's work. It'll never heal. His legal paper cast was soaked black. Blood collected on Noni's kitchen table. His eyes were swollen shut and his face had been insulted by a heel. Ben's head was thrown back in a dead man's pose. His long, dirty hair matted to his cheeks while his clouded breath barely kept him alive in this new year. The shame is Ben forgot we spoke. He said he heard my voice calling to him from a private parlor in downtown Santa Fe. The type where once a year cash is paid to a quiet house manager who keeps your liquor stocked in a silver cigar box filled with up-and-comers and proven champs. I did call him to wish him a happy new year. I heard music and women laughing. Tough timbers of sex and booze poured through Noni's kitchen phone. Ben didn't remember hiding in the bathroom talking for an hour on the depth of highway cement and the best disappearing act we'd ever seen. We spoke on all of it. I told him about Colorado and Maddie's parents, how we ended up at Noni's. I said I was tired outside of Denver. The sight of Ben put Maddie in a hiss. She took Ben at face value. All she saw was a strung out deadbeat father. She stood behind him, still in her dress from the past night. She propped his head up on her sequined chest and wiped his face with a wet kitchen rag. He kept on trying to babble through. He was at the parlor. We spoke while he was at the parlor. He drove out to his old house. He wanted to make things right. I had to make things right, he mumbled. It was Stephen talk. The whole speech stank of it. Maddie wanted wanted him to repeat what he said, but I wanted to hear the truth. Why'd you go out there, Ben? Why would you go out there? I pushed. Ben grabbed the rag from Maddie's hand and held it over his right eye. He rolled his head around and opened his other eye as wide as he could. Look at me, Frank. Things have changed. I won't let him take my son. Maddie took his arm and helped him to the couch. He stumbled forward, his feet falling like he was waiting on sticks. He kept saying, thank you. Thank you for everything, Maddie. I picked up his car keys from the table and went out the front door. Ben Shank was born Polish, but his daddy bought some Pueblo blood into the family's soul. The Shanks made their family fortune from partial ownership in the native casinos peppered throughout the Southwest. His father, Marcus, had only one son, was white, and claimed his Pueblo blood through a five-year magic spell called the admission thread. Back when the casinos were just breaking ground, Marcus paid in 50,000 cash and signed over a 27% stake in all of the Shanks' assets worth over $5,000 to the Pueblo Nation. For that, a tribal elder sowed the Shanks' white blood into the tribe. Ben told me he was just a kid, but he remembered when the man which came to his house wearing a one-piece work suit cut off at the knees. He said the medicine man milled dirt in their backyard till dead Pueblo told him when the Shanks arrived in the States. He burned driftwood and ate carizo until he was sure Warren Shank, Ben's great-great-grandfather, never spilled any, any Pueblo blood in the Great Revolt, swindled land deals, or raped their squaws under winter moons. When the check cleared, the medicine man ran a stone knife across little Ben's chest and collected his six-year-old blood. He mixed it with a vulture's egg, desert rock fungus, and, tri and trickled drops into all the New Mexican rivers surrounding Pueblo land. The Shanks were now a tax-exempt tribe, able to claim federal money and profit share in one of the richest native gambling empires in the nation. When Ben got out of university, Marcus set him up with a mansion in a gated community outside of Santa Fe. He hired Ben, he hired ben on to look after all the family interests in the local casinos, Camel Rock, Big Rock, Sandia. 
Over the years, Marcus had started thinking less and less of his tribal business partners. The old man smelled numbers cooking in Peace Pipe County. He bought estates all across Arizona and New Mexico to keep an eye on all the shank money. That was Ben's job for a long time before we met. He was put together, mean and greedy. He said his father always told him to say, take it easy, chief. I'm just looking out for all of us in the tribe. Everything was breaking the shank's way until Ben met the blonde Miss New Mexico in 1987, Allie Sharp. Nothing but a steady, calculated whore with a numbed out cunt for hours and hours of ragged out sex. Five months after they met, they were married. Four months after the wedding, their son Sean was born. And when Ben looked on his baby for the first time, he saw a grand wager for himself. The chance to change his selfish route and forget the shank virtues of jealousy, envy, and uninch greed. Ben enrolled in a private bohemian school. Ben enrolled Sean in a private bohemian school, taught his son to read himself, took him into the canyons and showed him the shallow rivers and drought, gave him a mutt and a bicycle and turned him loose. Marcus fumed and Allie got her angle. She opened a separate bank account and started shaving off the monthly stipends from the family trust. One by one, she changed the locks around the house and sent pictures to Marcus of his grandson, sole heir to the family gold, shirtless in a Pueblo headdress, learning a rain dance at the private academy of youth education and holistic wellness. The old man flew to Santa Fe that night, punched Ben in the face and put a 25 pistol in Sean's hand. Don't let your father ruin you, Sean. Define yourself, is what Marcus screamed. But Sean couldn't do it. He ran into the empty, dark desert outside the mansion's gate, outside the mansion's gates, and did a small rain dance around a pile of rotted-out chamisa. Ben said Sean's dance saved his life. A neighbor driving home, a neighbor driving home, called the police when he saw the six-year-old half-naked with dirt and tears on his face. And when the cops took Sean home, they came on Marcus and Ben in a hunting rifle. I was all Ben had. He came to me and fell apart. Tell me how Allie stole custody of Sean, how she had turned him on to Los Alamos cocaine. He said Marcus had moved into the mansion, hired his big Jew accountant to tutor and bodyguard Sean, and was now fucking Allie day after day. Marcus told Ben, his own son, to his face, that he couldn't help himself. Allie's pussy made him feel close to God. Did I read too fast? Good. Um, if you guys got any questions, I'll take a few questions. And yes, I am available for children's parties. <laughs> I'm more than happy to read this and scare some children. Uh, if there are any questions, I'll take a few questions. If not, we can adjourn. Oh, yes. Yes, Christine. Tell, tell us more about, okay, so this was, this is the second chapter. Yeah. Can you tell us more about what, what happens now? Um, you know, the book is equal parts um, a meditation on the Southwest um, and a, you know, a, a, a literary thriller, uh, as my friend said, a hardcore head trip through the Southwest. You know, it is, Frank and Maddie are at the center of the story, their relationship. Frank is a 37-year-old ex-junkie, uh, and Maddie is a 20-year-old uh, young junkie and Frank is trying to go straight and he gets dragged into this kidnapping with Ben, his best friend. Um, then they go through uh, the four corners of the Southwest uh, getting chased and um, you know I think it's 
um, as much about uh, the landscape of the Southwest is kind of the backdrop, but it's also about kind of my own experiences with addiction and with uh, that world and um, kind of a big memorial to all of that. So. You grew up in the Southwest? No, I went to college out there and I spent some time. Uh, I went to a small school called College of Santa Fe in New Mexico and it is no longer, it's now defunct. But I went to school there and then I, after I dropped out, I kind of kicked around New Mexico for a while. And um, yeah, it's a pretty unique, Santa Fe specifically is in, in New Mexico is, is a pretty unique state um, just because of the demographics and the uh, socioeconomic problems you've got, uh, specifically Santa Fe, because, just because you have such the extremely wealthy and absolutely no middle class, the local population is very poor, so you have extremely wealthy and um, uh, very poor, and they also suffer uh, the, the, uh, a lot of the Native American reservations had the meth epidemic much earlier than the rest of the country, they were, they were dealing with that, and um, the book gets into Chiba, which was a late 90s. I think it's just made another resurgence, which was back when I was growing up, it was called Chiba, but it was cheap, snortable heroin, which kind of tore through, started out of Mexico and went through Texas and then came back up through the Southwest. I don't think it made it that way north, but I think it's kind of made it, it's having a second go at it right now. Um, every, you know, like all drugs, they get remarketed to the youth. So yeah, that is. In our heart. But, it, but it is exciting and it is a page turner. And, and <laughs> all that being said, it's all that other stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. What were your drug addictions? Um, you know, uh, what time is this? What time are you guys close? Uh, I, I mean, I've, did every, I've, done, I've done a lot of drugs. Um, everything that's in the everything that's in the book, I've, I've done. Um, I think personally, I think it's it's interesting to see what um, drugs end up people uh, gravitating toward. I think at the end of the day, predictably, I was into booze and cocaine. But along the way, to me, kind of settling on that in my twenties, um, I did just about everything under the sun. Um, um, I think, uh, yeah, it's it's. For me, it's always interesting the way a lot of drug addicts and the way the, the life of the, of the journey of addiction is portrayed in the media is that it's this, uh, someone like gets hooked on crap. And that's there, they're gonna stay out. I mean, from my experience and the people that I've spent time with, it's any, it's what, what you got, how much you got, let's go until, until it's done and whatever's clever, you know. I was, I smoke, I, you know, I was smoking crack. The first day I was smoking, <clears throat> when I was supposed to take the SAT for the first time, I was smoking crack, and then later on the day, you know, the next day I'm tripping acid. It, it was, it was. I don't think it's not as tidy as it's portrayed. Um, but you know, like I said, it's interesting what you end up settling down with, and uh, kind of ends up feeding your, uh, feeding your monkey. Yeah. As a writer, what was your experience mining that? material for for a story. I think this book, you know, I wrote, like I said, this took me about seven years, seven years. So at the time I was coming off of, I, I didn't do 12 step. I did probably about six years of pretty hardcore therapy. That's how I came to my sobriety. And I think in the process, when I got about halfway through it, first thing I noticed I could finish, I could finish the book. It was the first book that I started. I started a lot of books. I was like, I can finish this book. I know this book. All the other books I started, I was like, I'm gonna write something. 
it's gonna be incredible. But this was a book that I started, I was like, I know these people, I know, I know this world, I can finish it. And then once I was into it and I was really invested in it, I think I had the realization that I was writing it to as much to uh, memorialize that part of my life and to revisit all those people and that world um, as I was to have a book done. Um, it was, I think, during the time it was really exciting. I think oh, this last round of edits, I think it was much different because now that I'm so removed from it, that going back uh, specifically to this world of Frank, because uh, it's first person all the way through, is uh, was difficult because it was definitely taking a big step back into and getting back into his shoes, which are not, you know, I like to say there's a lot of me in Frank, there's not a lot of Frank in me, but so there's like echoes of a lot of the same emotions that I had when I was writing it, but it's, uh, was, yeah, I want, you know, I, I don't like romanticizing the shit because it pisses me off. Uh, I don't think the drug addiction validates the work. And I've been really adamant about that along the publishing process. I don't want it to validate the work. It's what I happen to know about and what I happen to focus on here. But if you're just, if that's all you're seeing and you're missing it, I don't think that, you know, I didn't want to write an addiction story and say, it's valid because I did it, man, this is legit. Like, I can't, I, I, I don't, I think that that's so overplayed and we lose so many good artists um, because of that, because it's, it's total, it's, it's literally BS. It's, it's not true. The, the, I think uh, somebody said that you got to keep in mind that all these great artists that, that everybody's saying that they did drugs to create the work, they created that work in spite of the drugs. They didn't create it because of it. And it's a shame that we lose so many people because of it. Because um, addiction's real. And and um, now there, there needs to be more transparency, I think, in the, art, in the artist community, as far as addressing that there's, yeah, it's cool to like put on a hat and you know smoke your cigarettes and do your whole thing that you stay up late at night with your bottle of bourbon and everything. But dude, that ain't, that, that I, there are about a hundred other guys that are totally doing it straight. They're going to publish way before you. They're going to have much, so much more success. And what you want so badly, you're literally destroying. You know, you can't, you can't outrun it. You know, so that's my, that's my show, bro. Yeah, yes, yes, um, much. <laughs> um, I'm curious if you had any, any other kind of goals around kind of the, you know, portraying the origins of addiction? No, I think the, the goal was, is, and it always will be with all my work, is whether it's this uh, or poverty or anybody that's living on the fringe, I really focus on the fringe, people living on the fringe, is that wants to present the work um, a realistic, uh, an unsentimental portrait of the, of, of, the, of the world, but doing it with, uh, compassion and trying to walk that line um, in that I mean that you're trying to I'm trying to create uh, show the world of these people uh, as it really is the best thing you can do and the best comments I get are from this or people who read it who struggle with addiction or gone through or been inside them will be like this feels real great I, I love that that but at the same time um, that I'm not trying to uh, like like mine it I'm not trying to mine it I'm not trying to glorify it I'm not trying to but it still showed that these people are real my greatest hopes is that when you when you look at you know you come across uh, a junkie on the street 
when you're walking down the street or somebody that's really struggling um, that you take and you can stop and say, this person has a huge interior life going on, despite they, they can't see that, you know, they're, they're kind of going to, they're going down um, at the t moment, that, but that, that doesn't, that doesn't negate that their emotional life is just as uh, valid and um, um, vibrant as anybody else's, as anybody that's sober. So, yeah. Yes, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, whose voice were you reading in? This is Frank's. I think, um, I think... Uh, Desiree and I were talking about that earlier. Um, you know, yeah, that's that's. I just finished. On a side note, I just the books literally today is available on iTunes and Audible.com, and I did. I was lucky enough to get to do the performance of it all the way through. So that if you guys, if you're not big readers, you guys can check that out. Um, but I got to read it. I didn't. So your question, I was worried, uh, well I wasn't worried, I was like, I've spent so much time reading this book, I'm going to know it, I know the book, but once I got in the booth, it was, I was surprised what, and where, whose voices landed where, because it wasn't a really super conscious thing, it was just kind of like, let's see, and then the, kind of the characters kind of took, took on their life as we went, as I got deeper into it, and uh, yeah, you know, I'm a big believer that Frank is equal parts uh, Johnny Cash and Little Wayne. Um, I think if you've been there, um, if you're scoring, if you're, you know, it's funny when you're freebasing at like three o'clock in the morning in Las Vegas, and you're to your right is a school teacher, and to your right is like a 30-year-old army dropout, and over there is a serious Hoover crib, and everybody is talking serious street but everybody understands what's going on. And that to me is what I was trying to capture in his world and his language and the diction that I use is that there is a, uh, there's kind of, once you get low enough, everybody understands despite where they're coming from, everybody knows um, junkie talk and, and, and um, who's saying what despite, and it always blew, that always like blew my mind in the moment where I was just like, how does that work? Like, how does you know, like, how do you know, like, what she, he's, how do you understand that? Because you're so from the other side of town. But they always did, and everybody, everybody had a lot of laughs um, oh, in, in those moments. And it was, that's what I was trying to reach with my writing, but, you know, it's refined, too. I'm a language junkie, so it's trying to, trying to capture all that, trying to capture that world, world, and the text, for the text to live in that world where the um, music of the language is complementing the truth of the characters, because I think that's where some real magic happens for the reader, and where I can take you on some rides. Yes, Deirdre. So, so I've heard you don't want to romanticize it. Right. Uh, you want to look at you want to look at it without sentimentality, but you also want compassion. Yes. So, wow, that sounds amazing. I mean, really. I don't know if I achieve it. I try. Well, I'm really, well, from what I heard, well, I can't wait to read it. <laughs> but I also wonder if you, if you had other writers that you saw were doing that, or if there are other, or... I, I, yeah, I make no both. I mean, to me, uh, to move, I think any writer of my generation, Dennis Johnson's kind of the Pope for us, and what he came when he came out with all his work, was really transformative to my whole generation that were in writing school at the time. It's just so, it's it's like before and after for us is what he was doing. Um, that being said, he, you know, as quickly as he, he, 
he got he 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 I don't think I don't think he wanted that title as much as being like the the guy like the wounded soul out there but he was I mean his works it's by itself it's so singular his work it, both his poetry and his prose in every form so there's that writers um yeah I think I to be honest I read more poetry than I do fiction um so um if I have fiction writers yeah I I, I was groomed my teacher Jack Butler I was groomed in the southern literary tradition so I'm a big fan of Barry Hannah Jack Butler um I, I, hopefully you can feel that in the way that I, 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 I play the stories out, but um, you know, you, I, I'm also like, I, I, yeah, I'm a real language fan and I will sit and read a lot of poetry to get the uh, brevity and um, the strength of, that, that, the, of what they're doing in poetry and I try to work that into my fiction. Yeah, as much as I can to answer your question. So yes, that is it. Thank you. Oh yes, yes. Sorry. I'm just wondering because you mentioned it took a while to get published even once yeah. the book was finished. Um, just because I know like I've met your beautiful baby. So yeah, yeah. Since it was published to now, did you in these last rounds of edits did, did your life now affect it at all? Or were you able to kind of time capsule it back to that um, specific? I think to some extent, I think uh, specifically the, I think more so in the performance, uh, just because of the relationship with Sean and Frank, um, those two characters that Sean's a younger boy, um, and uh, the the relationship with Ben and his son also. Not so much, I wouldn't say, uh, maybe moving forward, but in this specific, because, specifically because it's in Frank, it's in first person, that there's only so much that the you know the uh, the emotional kind of range of Frank is is it, it's limited to his world, and that was really defined. Now with all the time going by, that's a really defined world, like where Frank lives and how he thinks about things. Very very defined. Like if I was to try to get in there, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't it'd be like children children are happy and beautiful and the butterfly. Like you wouldn't think about that at all. Ever not in that sense anyway, but yeah, it's I look at it differently. I look at the book differently. I look at my art differently since Fred's been born big time. I don't take it for granted, and uh, I'm more conscious of what I'm putting out there because uh, there's no it's you know it's not going to be much fun going forward. I think for, I think that the, the world the world's a crazy place, crazy crazy place. And when he gets to be my age, I can't imagine what it's going to be like. All right, so let's wrap it up and thank you guys for coming. <laughs>